Uh, come, and let me tell you about a story about a man named Jed. You know the Jed I'm talking about? You know the guy I'm talking about? You know, this poor mountaineer barely kept his family fed. There was one day he was shooting for some food. Up from the ground came a bubbling crude oil, that is. Texas, uh, uh, black gold, Texas tea. Well, the first thing you know, old Jed's a millionaire. Kinfolk said, Jed, move away from there. California is the place you ought to be. So they loaded up the truck and moved to Beverly Hills, that is. Swimming pools, movie stars, the Beverly Hillbillies. My wife uh, is embarrassed that I can remember all the lyrics of that song, but I can't remember the first stanza of Amazing Grace. But when you think the name Jed or Jedediah, you may immediately go to Jed Clampett and all the wealth he amassed by discovering oil in his property in Tennessee and moved to Beverly Hills. You may think of that name Jed. We're gonna look at a Jed in Scripture who was greatly blessed. If you wanna open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 11, 1 Kings chapter 11, we're going to uh, be looking again at a cautionary tale. The last four weeks we've been looking, the last few weeks we've been looking at cautionary tales. We began with the first king of Israel, King Saul. Then last week we looked at King David and the cautionary tale of his life. Even as a man after God's own heart, he allowed himself to get caught up in lust and greed and power. And we saw the cautionary tale of his life. And this week we look at the third king of Israel, King Jedediah. And you say, King Jedediah? I don't remember King Jedediah. Jed, what are you talking about? When Nathan the prophet confronted David over his sin, the baby that had been conceived in sin by David with Bathsheba died, but God blessed David and Bathsheba with a child in their wedlock, and that child, Nathan said, should be called Jedidiah. That would be his formal name because it means the Lord is gracious, and the Lord had been gracious to David in his forgiveness as David repented to the Lord, as we saw last week. And so I imagine, you know, we know this man as Solomon. That's the name that is used for him in the Bible, and it is used by his parents to describe him. We know him as King Solomon, David's son. But when Bathsheba called his name when he was a boy and he got in trouble, it would be, Jedediah Solomon, you get in here right now. Jedediah was his God-given name. Solomon means peace. And so he became one known for peace. As a matter of fact, by the time he inherited the kingdom from David, the kingdom was very secure and all the nations respected the kingdom of Israel and all the boundaries were secure. The economy was humming. Things were going great. You remember when he was young and had just become king, God appeared to Solomon and said, I so loved your father, David, that I wanna bless you. What can I give you that would help you as a king? And Solomon responded, give me wisdom. And to this day, Solomon's known as one of the wisest men, if not the wisest person that ever lived. He collected the Proverbs, and we have the Song of Solomon, we have Ecclesiastes. These are wisdom books that help us understand life here on earth and the realities of life the wisdom uh, that comes even from God. And God was so impressed by the request of wisdom that God said, since you didn't request wealth, I'm gonna give you wealth. I'm gonna give you wisdom and wealth. And I want you just to walk with me, trust me, keep me as the focus of your life, 
and I will bless you, Solomon. And so Solomon comes to this place where his kingdom is extremely successful. As a matter of fact, in the, in the chapter before this chapter, in chapter 10, we read about Solomon's success as the king of Israel. In verse 14 of chapter 10, we're told that he received 25 tons of gold in tribute annually from other kings and governors. Now this is beyond the trade agreements and the taxes that he collected from those trade agreements with other nations. This was just other nations bringing him 25 tons of gold just to thank him for not invading them, for having peace with them. And then we read that he had, he had so much gold that he used gold to make shields for his army. Didn't even have to melt it down. He hammered it out. It was such thick gold. There's a description in chapter 10 about his throne being made with ivory and great beauty and had six steps with lions on either side of the steps. And so when governors and kings came from other parts of the world and visited Solomon, they would be impressed and they would stand back and look at the magnificence of this king of Israel. We read in chapter 10 and verse 20, there was no throne like it in any of the surrounding kingdoms. Then we're told that nothing was made of silver in his day in his household because silver was considered common and cheap. He had so much gold, silver lost its value. As a matter of fact, later we read that the king made silver as common as rocks because he had so much of it. King Solomon is described as sending out ships, fleets of ships that would leave Israel and go and, and collect resources from around the, the rim of the Mediterranean from various kingdoms. And when those ships would return, they'd bring in cargo of gold, silver, ivory, apes and gorillas and peacocks. He had a menagerie of all kinds of creatures. And so again, as people would visit and go to him for wisdom, there would be all this impressive global collection of stuff that he would show off. People would bring to him, we read, that they would come to him in verse 23 of chapter 10. He was wiser and richer than all the kings of the earth. He surpassed them all. People came from all over the world just to be with Solomon and drink in the wisdom God had given him. And everyone who came brought him gifts of artifacts of gold and silver, fashionable robes and gowns, the latest in weapons, exotic spices, horses and mules. He had parades of visitors year after year. year. He had everything you could imagine. And he had wisdom from God. God had warned the nation of Israel that a king who began to trust in their power and their wealth and their might began to trust in horses and chariots over God, that would be a dangerous thing. And even in chapter 10, there's a description that he has so many chariots and so many horses, he makes actual little cities around Jerusalem that are just designed for his horses and chariots to be cared for. You get the sense that this guy's got some great success. He's achieved a lot, and all of it has come as a blessing of a God. Much of it, not all of it, but much of it is really just good stuff that God has blessed him we also know, according to verse 1 of chapter 11, that King Solomon was obsessed with women. So what do, we, what do we learn as a cautionary tale from the life of this one who had such great success, this guy named Jed? Well, I want to talk today about when we build idols. When we build idols. Now, you're already saying, well, Sean, I don't, 
I don't sit around carving things out of stone or wood that then I bow down and worship to. I, I, I really don't have idols. Idols are from the ancient world or from primitive pockets on the globe today, but there are no idols in my life. I'm here to tell you that in the American culture, we have far more idols than Solomon had access, in, access to in his day. See, an idol is, is not just something that you can actually physically touch or look at or bow down. It's anything that we give the preeminence and ultimate place in our life that God should have. As we look into 1 Kings 11, 1 through 13, in the cautionary tale of King Solomon, remember this, that God wired us to make something or someone the ultimate thing in our lives to live a life of worship. We were created in the image of God to reflect the glory of God, to magnify and exalt God just by our very existence and how we live. We're wired for worship. You're going to worship something, whether it's the true God or your lust or greed or pride, the stuff of this world, the positions, the power, or even the good things, your marriages, your, your marriage, your kids, your career, your job, your dreams. We even worship things like resentment and grief and other things that get that ultimate place that replace God in our lives. We were wired for worship. When I let anything or anyone other than God be the ultimate thing in my life, I have built an idol and I'm worshiping it. The Holy Spirit may speak to you during this message and say, here's an idol. And it may be something God has blessed you with. It might be something good in your life. But you've given that thing or that person that concept or that idea, a greater place than God in your life. John Calvin said, our hearts are idol factories. In our sin, we're just constantly trying, we're producing idols that would replace God. Pastor J.D. Greer said, when something becomes so important to you that it drives your behavior and commands your emotions, you are worshiping it. Pastor Rick Warren wrote, if not to God, you will surrender to the opinions or expectations of others, to money, to resentment, to fear, or to your own pride, lusts, or ego. You were designed to worship God, and if you fail to worship him, you will create other things, idols, to give your life to. You are free to choose what you surrender to, but you're not free from the consequence of that choice. Pastor and author Timothy Keller says, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Pastor Adrian Rogers, who's now with the Lord, wrote, an idol is anything you love more, fear more, value more, or serve more than you do Almighty God. You fill in the blank. And in conclusion of these various quotes, Timothy Keller, I think, just summarizes this so well. Idolatry happens when we take good things and make them ultimate things. For pastors in the ministry, the ministry can become an idol. We could take the good things of a marriage, a good marriage, a good family. We take our children, and even in Christian homes, we, we've often made our children, our families, idols. They take the preeminent place in our lives over God. Now let me say this, all these things that God had blessed Solomon with, all the things that God blesses us with, when they are in their proper place with God seated on the throne of our hearts and our lives, then everything else falls under that 
then there is meaning and satisfaction. But when we put something or someone other than God on the throne of our lives, we are in deep danger because we've now entered into idolatry. 1 Kings 11. I'll begin reading in verse one. You can follow along in a hard copy of your Bible. Maybe you have a mobile device like I have with my iPad here and you have an app. You wanna follow along, you can follow the words on the screen. Remember this great king with all the success we just read about in chapter 10, now in 1 Kings 11, verse one. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. This is not an issue of ethnicity or race. This is an issue of these foreign gods will distract your heart from the one true God, Jehovah. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. Now, I've heard a lot of preachers make comments here at that many wives and concubines, and I'm not gonna make any of those kind of comments other to say that this is not God's plan for marriage. And this becomes a part of the problem here in trying to satisfy and bring all these wives into his household. He gets distracted and starts following other gods. We also know that a harem like this in the ancient world is a very large harem. This would also represent peace treaties because if you made peace with another king that I won't invade you, you won't invade me, one of the ways you sealed that deal was there would be a marriage between the king and the other nation, the daughter of another king that would say, we won't attack each other because now we're family. That even happened in Europe, even up until the 18th and 19th centuries, those kinds of marriages to secure peace. And that's probably a lot of what this is. But notice that his heart gets distracted. Verse four, as Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Asheroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Moloch, the detestable God of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. Now we remember David got himself caught in sin and lust and power and greed. But one thing you find in the life of David while he was king of Israel, he never tolerated idolatry of any kind in Israel. No foreign gods could be worshiped and that is unique to David. That's why he's described as one whose heart sought after God. He was a man after God's own heart. Oh, to be a person after God's own heart. And so Solomon is distinctly different. His heart has been distracted. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. He took prominent high places that could be noticeable by everyone that there was a sacrifice being made and they would wanna know what God, and what happened now is there's confusion in Israel. Jehovah God has been replaced with these other gods in many instances. And when you read about Chemosh and Moloch, these two gods, the gods of the Ammonites and the Moabites, these are gods that we know historically from secular historians that were associated, these pagan gods were associated with child sacrifice. Now here's the son of David allowing this kind of immorality and debauchery to come in 
and to allow his heart to be distracted from the one true God. Verse nine, the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, since this is your attitude, since this is your disposition, since this is your posture, and you've not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Even as we saw last week in David's repentance in Psalm 51, there are consequences that get carried out. And here are the consequences to Solomon's sin. Nevertheless, for, your, for the sake of, your, of David, your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. His son would be Rehoboam. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Next week, we'll deal with the fourth cautionary tale. We looked at Saul, the first king, David, the second king of Israel, now Solomon, or Jedidiah, the third king of Israel, and we'll look at Solomon's son, Rehoboam, and how these consequences are carried out in the arrogance of Rehoboam. And next week, in that cautionary tale, Pastor Brian Howard and I are gonna do something different. We're gonna team teach that sermon on Rehoboam and the, the shift to the next generation and how it went terribly wrong. This is a sad statement about King Solomon who'd been given wisdom and wealth and success and peace and so much good stuff that he allowed his heart to be distracted. I think he believes a bunch of lies that are easy for us to believe. And quickly, I wanna just move through 10 subtle lies that cause me to build an idol or cause you to build an idol, cause us to build idols, put something else in that place of prominence in our lives, that ultimate place other than God. Line number one, the God I want is better than the God who is. The God I want is better than the God who is. Solomon gets caught up in the pleasures and stuff and the status, the popularity, the success of this world, so much so that in Ecclesiastes, he'll look at his entire life as he's older and he'll say, all that stuff was meaningless. It was empty. I now see it for what it was. And then he makes one challenge to us at the end of his reflections late in life about how empty life was and its pleasures, its stuff, its power, its prestige. He says, remember the creator in the days of your youth. Make God your priority when you're young. Keep God your priority throughout your life. And then life has meaning and satisfaction. And he speaks of this because he had pursued the God he wanted, believing the God he wanted was better than the God who is. Are you looking for the God you want or are you opening God's word and pursuing the God who is? Too many of us are pursuing the God we want. We want to define him. We want to shape him. We want to put him in, a, in our own image. And there is such great danger to that lie. D.A. Carson says, the heart of all idolatry in the Bible is the de-godding of God. When we go after the God we want rather than the God who is, we de-god God in our lives. Line number two, the God who is won't be bothered by my relationship with the God I want. What you see here in Solomon's life is syncretism. He's got this place, he helps build the temple that David couldn't build to worship the one true God. And while he's building that temple, he's allowing these other places of worship to be established to these false, pagan, immoral gods. Because he thinks, okay, 
Jehovah won't be bothered by my just adding some other things. And syncretism is very dangerous. In today's world, it's we live our lives the way we want to live them, and we give our stuff, our affluence, our influence, higher place in our life than they should be given, and we, we remove Christ from that place of exaltation in our lives. And then we just sort of go through our lives doing whatever we want, saying whatever we want, living however we want, and we just sprinkle a little Jesus on it every now and then. That's syncretism. It's dangerous. Line number three, the God I want will help strengthen my relationships with others. That's evidenced by the number of wives and concubines he has. And he's married to the daughter of the Pharaoh of Egypt. He's married to the daughter of the king of the Moabites, the Ammonites. He's made all these peace deals and he believes that pursuing even his sensual lust through his relationship with these various women, that somehow that's gonna help him have better relationships with others because that's the God he wants. And when you make your status, your influence, who you are, what you have, the thing that helps you get stronger relationships rather than God himself, you're in a very dangerous place and your relationships are on are built on, on, on sinking sand. The God I want will help strengthen my relationships with others. That's a lie. Lie number four, the God I want, the one I want to craft to make God like me and how I want him to be, the God I want will help me do what I want to do. So if your career or your portfolio or your stuff is your God, then that stuff is going to be used to help you do what you want to do. If it's people that you've put in that place, if it's lust or greed or pride you put in that place, then whatever those things are that will help you do what you want to do, you're going to do because your God is a means to the things you want to do. Kyle Eidelman wrote, idolatry isn't just one of many sins, it's the one great sin that all others come from. All of the sins come out of the reality that somehow we don't have Christ at the center of our hearts, our minds, and our lives. Line number five, the more gods I have, the better life will be. This kind of goes back to the idea of just, you know, isn't it better just to have, you know, my, my career, my, my relationship with my spouse, my, my sex life, my, my stuff, it's all up there, and so is Jesus. He's in there. I don't know. He needs to be king of kings and lord of lords, not just of the universe, but of our lives. He needs to have that ultimate place when anything else creeps in. Then we are heading toward a path of destruction. Line number six, the God I want expects me to be sincere and committed, not obedient. It's interesting that these, these things that can control us, the things that can take over our lives, they don't really care if we are completely obedient to them, just that we're sincere, committed, and following them, whether it's our lust, our greed, or pride, whether it's the good stuff that God has blessed us with. But the God who is says, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, I'm the one who designed you and created you. I know where satisfaction and meaning is found, and it's found in following in my son's footsteps, in living and loving like Jesus in this world. But all the other gods are gonna say, hey, just be committed to me, that's all you need. The one true God is gonna say, walk in obedience and you will find peace and meaning and satisfaction in life. Line number seven, I get to define how and when and where I approach the God I want. 
See, Solomon as king and with these wives and these worship places he's established, these foreign gods, he's controlling how, when, and where he worships what he worships. But part of making Christ the center of your life is to submit to his lordship in every area of your life. But if you think you get to define how, when, and where you approach the God you want, then the stuff or the people, the things of this world have control of you more than the God who created you, the Redeemer who provided salvation for you. Line number seven, the God I want serves me. We get to the point when we're so caught up in our stuff, our success, our status, our things, our relationships, of our great successes, that now all these gods just serve me. The God I want serves me. And then we get to line number nine. I will hold the God I want accountable rather than be accountable to it or to him. People, I mean, I say it every now and then. I know others say it. We say, when I get to heaven, I'm gonna ask God why this is true in the Bible. I'm gonna ask God about this story. I'm gonna ask God about why this happened in my life, what I've gone through. I've got some questions for God. And just to say you have questions for God, you want clarity, I get that. But I also meet people who will say, when I get to heaven, I'm gonna hold God accountable for what happened when this happened. Oh, really now? When you stand before God, you're gonna be flat on your face before him. If you're his child, you're gonna be overwhelmed by his holiness, but you're gonna be overwhelmed by his grace in the very same moment. There's gonna be a depth of love and, and satisfaction and worship of God in the moment, but you'll be flat on your face before the holy God of the universe. I was reading not long ago, someone said, some Christians have come to the place Instead of seeing God is good and ourselves is fallen, we see ourselves is good and God is fallen and we'll hold him accountable one day for the life I had to live. It's a dangerous place to be when you think the gods that are important to you, the idols you've made, you'll hold them accountable or you'll hold the God who is accountable. Oh no, you won't. He's gonna hold you accountable. It's appointed unto every human being once to die and then we stand before God in judgment. Number 10, line number 10, when you believe these other lies and you've allowed other things to crowd in and crowd out Jesus on the throne of your life, line number 10 is, I am God. I am God. This is where Satan wanted to take Adam and Eve. You eat of the tree, you'll be like God. Then we become gods. And I, you just look again at uh, these, these opening verses of 1 Kings 11, the first 13 verses, and you see God is angry with Solomon because Solomon has now made himself his own God. The stuff, the sex, the power, the status, the, the show he puts on with all the great things he's gathered from around the world, all of that led to the point where he put himself in that place as God. That's a dangerous place to be, but if you believe these lies, then the God who is, who made you and loves you, who sent Jesus to die for you, is pushed off the throne of your life, and you ultimately make yourself God. It's a dangerous, dangerous, miserable, unsettled, unsatisfying place to be. Now you remember the other Jed, Jed Clampett. One of the things in that story of Jed Clampett that I really liked as a kid was here Jed Clampett moves from the hills of Tennessee and he moves to Beverly Hills. Lives in a big mansion, 
but he sits out front whittling. <laughs> All kinds of people try to take advantage of him, get his money, live in his house, take advantage of his family, even family members from back in the hills come, the banker, Mr. Drysdale, everybody's got their angle trying to take advantage of this man. And with all of the wealth he got, you know, one of the things about the story of Jed Clampett that was interesting was he stayed the same honest, kind, gentle man. Wasn't moved, right? But the opposite is true of what happened to Solomon. Solomon got caught up in all these lies and he got himself into deep lust and greed and pride and it all became idol-making in his life to the point where he himself became God. Maybe the Holy Spirit is saying to you, hey, there's an area in your life, there's something you need to deal with. This is an area that you need to pay attention to. What do you do when you discover that you have put something other than Jesus and that ultimate place in your life? Well, let me give you three steps to tearing down the idols in your life. Three steps to tearing down the idols in my life. Number one, step number one, name them. You notice that the scriptures name Moloch and Chemosh and mention the other gods from the other people groups that had been brought into his household and into his nation. Let God hear you say what you've lifted above him. After all, the first commandment given is there be no other gods before him. Romans 1, and 23 say, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Verse 25 goes on to say what the real problem is here. They traded the truth about God for a lie, so they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself who is worthy of eternal praise. That's the bottom line. When we get into idolatry, we trade ourselves, our stuff, our relationships, our things, even the things God has blessed us with, but the things God has created. We exchange those things for the creator himself, and that's a problem. Can I encourage you, if you're a follower of Christ this week, every day as you talk to the Lord, just say, Lord, show me anything, any idol that has crept into that ultimate place. Show me those things that I've allowed to slide up there and get close and I'm on the edge. Reveal the idols of my life, the things I have lifted above you. Maybe he's gonna show you your career. Maybe he's gonna show you a relationship. Maybe he's gonna show you resentment you hold. Maybe he's going to show you something that you have made the ultimate thing in your life. But be honest with God. God, show me the idols in my life. And then when you are shown those idols, name them out loud to God. Okay, God, yes, my marriage, my bank account, my portfolio, my dream, my success, it's been lifted above you. Step number two, you not only name them, then you remove them. You leave no room for them to be built ever again in any way. You look at the story of the nation of Israel when a king would bring revival and get rid of the idol worship that had been brought in by the king before them or the generations before them. They would tear them down, they'd burn them up, they'd leave nothing so that nothing could ever be rebuilt ever again in that place. And we need to name them and then we need to Ask God, the Holy Spirit, to help us remove them completely. 2 Kings 17, 38 through 41 says, Do not forget the covenant I've made with you, and do not worship other gods. Rather, worship the Lord your God. They would not listen, however, but persisted in their former practices. Even while these people were worshiping the Lord, they were serving their idols. 
Remove the idols. Don't be someone who says, okay, I've removed them when I'm at church on the weekend. But then I serve them Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Remove them. Don't, don't be worshiping the Lord and then serving these idols. I like how Isaiah 44, 10 says it. Who but a fool would make his own God? Colossians 3, 5 says, put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Name those idols. Remove them from your lives so there is no room for them to be built ever again in any way. The Apostle John, speaking to believers in his generation, he refers to them as his children. He says in 1 John 5, 21, Dear children, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your hearts. What is it that has taken God's place in your heart? Name it and remove it through the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Thirdly, replace them. Name them, remove them, and then replace them. This is the third step to tearing down idols you have built in your own life. Seek to make God ultimate in your life. Seek to give him that preeminence he deserves. But let me caution you, if you don't have a relationship with God through his son Jesus, then you cannot make him ultimate in your life. The first step to putting God in his proper place in your life is to recognize you're a fallen sinner who can't measure up to God and to rest your faith in his son Jesus who died, was buried, and was raised for you so you could have a relationship with God. You could be forgiven. You could be his child. Put your faith in Jesus today. I'll be in the lobby. Other pastors are in the lobby. We can share with you how you can know that you have a relationship with God through Jesus now and forever. Our care and prayer team will be down front. They can help you after the service. If you're joining us online, even in the room, you can simply text the number 58568. Just make that the number you text. And just add to the message of the text the word Jesus. That's the only word you have to put in the message. 58568, Jesus. And then we'll help you understand what it means to have a relationship with God through Jesus, to be God's child. Just text that number and we'll connect with you. Make sure you know God personally through his son Jesus because you can't even begin to deal with the idols in your life until you have Jesus in your life and that comes through faith in him and what he's done for you child of God if you say yes I know I've got Christ in my life he is my savior then to give him that place of lordship make him ultimate in your life first chronicles 16 25 to 27 says for great is the lord and most worthy of praise he is to be feared above all gods and for all the gods of the nations are idols but the lord made the heavens splendor and majesty are before him strength and joy are in his dwelling place psalm 145 3 says great is the lord and most worthy of praise his greatness no one can fathom lift him up and then we're told in Philippians chapter two that God the Father and God the Son have exalted Jesus to be that name that is above every name. Therefore God exalted him to give him the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Maybe you need to get on your knees. 
Name what it is that has taken preeminence in your life, even a good thing God has blessed you with. Remove it. Say, God, remove that from that place of preeminence. I put it back where it deserves in my life and priorities and values. And I'm on my knees, and with my mouth, I'm confessing Jesus Christ is Lord of lords and King of kings, and he's Lord of my life. I want him to have that ultimate place. Renew and realign your worship. As I said, we were wired to worship something. You are worshiping something. You say, well, I'm an agnostic or an atheist. You are worshiping something. You are wired for it. You might say, well, I'm God's child, so of course I'm worshiping Jesus. Not necessarily. As this cautionary tale tells us, God's children can get their priorities out of whack and we can put something else in that place of preeminence that only Jesus should have. Ask God what the idols are. Name them. Remove them. Replace them. And watch as satisfaction and meaning begin to fill and flood your heart as you get Jesus in that ultimate place and you remove any idol or any hint of any idol in your life. It becomes a constant battle to make sure we put Jesus first. Remember Solomon said, remember the creator in the days of your youth. Give him that place of prominence he deserves and that brings to us great satisfaction when we do. This last week, my brother and I went to Indiana. We were raised in the South Bend, Indiana area, but my dad and his wife live in Fort Wayne, Indiana. After my mom's death, they got married, and they've been married about 23 years, and, and his wife um, got very sick and had to be put in ICU and appreciate your prayers for her, Brandy. She's still in the hospital and recovering and uh, battling some diabetic things and issues and just pray for her health and well-being, but it also threw my dad off a lot, and so Troy and I felt like we had to go there and try to walk with dad through some things and be there for them. And so we arrived and I thought it'd be cool to send our family a picture of the three of us together there in Indiana. And so took kind of a selfie and, and here we are when we arrived, you can see that our father is just thrilled that we are there uh, visiting. <laughs> you can just see the excitement on his face. And by the way, this is the second photo. We said, dad, you didn't smile, smile. He said, I am smiling. And then that was his smiling photo. You know, spending a little time with parents, you know, back near that setting where you grew up, and I was reminded that my dad is not a perfect guy. He's got a lot of issues and foibles and problems and sins of his life, but, you know, looking back, the one thing I remember in my dad's life was even when he'd mess up, even when he wasn't a perfect father, his heart's desire, the trajectory of his life was to know, love, and serve Jesus. He magnified Christ. Again, not a perfect man in any sense of the word, but someone who I watched grow in Jesus over time because he pursued knowing, loving, and serving Jesus. And I saw that as a kid, and because he magnified Christ, I was drawn deeper toward Christ. What about your life? Is your passion to make Jesus first, to know, love, and serve him in every way? Or have you allowed other things to crowd in and crowd out God, and you've replaced him with other little gods, idols. You see, when we make Jesus preeminent and he has that highest and ultimate place, even though we're not perfect, as we seek to know, love, and serve him, to worship him with every fiber of our being, what happens is our children, our grandchildren, our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends, they see Christ in us because Christ is magnified in us. 
And then they are drawn to Jesus too. What are you worshiping? What is the idol of your heart? What has that ultimate place? If not Jesus, name that idol. Remove that idol. Replace that idol with Jesus today. Father, thank you for the cautionary tale of King Solomon. May we learn that one who is greatly blessed can still get distracted from you. And we're very blessed in this region, this area. We have influence and affluence. and We can rely on that stuff more than we rely on you. I pray whatever the idols are of our hearts that you'd reveal them to us today. May we confess that, name that to you. May we remove those things and place you in that place of prominence again in our hearts and minds. Father, I pray for folks who really need to wrestle with this before you. May they not miss the warning of Solomon's life. The only way to satisfaction and meaning in this life is to have Christ at the center of it all, in that ultimate place. It's so easy to let the created things of this world replace the Creator. May we make Jesus the Lord of our lives daily. Remove the idols. Reveal the idols. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.